Today's episode brought to you by Scrappy-Doo and Banjo-2. They'd like to say, roughly translating, hey, go buy some Bryant's Blend coffee from foodforestfarms.com so we can get more dog food. Oh, some really yummy, great dog food. Foodforestfarms.com, Bryant's Blend, great coffee. On with the show. You have made it to yet another Scrambling University. Welcome, welcome. Oh, let's see. Today's start eight. Oh, let's see. <laughs> who, who is pinging in? Uh, is, uh, what the hell day is it? It's got to be November something. Uh, Thursday, November 3rd. We're doing Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance series on Thursday. Today, we are up to chapter eight. If you're joining me for the series, thank you. If it's the first time you bumped into this, you may want to just zip back and they're all marked ZMM, CH1, 2, 3, 4. Uh, go start at the beginning. Uh, it is a book, 35 chapters, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. We're doing one chapter a week on Thursdays. Sometimes I have people pop in with me, discuss the book. Uh, other times uh, I recorded it. It's all on a um, playlist on Odyssey, at Scrambling University on Odyssey. You can go over there if you don't like reading uh, and just listen to the book. Um, so anyway, that's the recording that I play is me reading the book. And uh, we just stop it along the way and do some interjections and some pointing outs. Uh, it was written by Robert Persig back in the early, early 70s. Um, it's called An Inquiry into Values. Um there's parallel stories. There's a kid and his son on a motorcycle trip with the guy's uh, friend and his wife from Minnesota out to the West Coast. And there's a sub story of the guy before he went insane and was electroshocked back to civilization uh, that he's starting to recall on the trip. Uh, and his former self was a super brainiac who is in charge seeking an answer to like Western logic itself or trying to prove that all of Western thought, all of scientific theory is no more than a ghost, just, just a creation. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's a good book. Anyway, so we're on chapter eight and, uh, then we're going to roll, uh, tomorrow, Friday, uh, Episode 146, I do Wooks and Workers. What the fuck is a Wook? I don't know. Tune in tomorrow. Tune in tomorrow. Okay, on with the show. Motorcycle Maintenance and Inquiry into Values by Robert M. Persing. I read slow, sorry. Spoken by Scrambling. Part two, chapter eight. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm sitting alongside the machine on a cool, shady curbstone back of a hotel we found in Miles City, Montana. 
Sylvia is with Chris at the laundromat doing the laundry for all of us. John is off looking for a duck bill to put on his helmet. He thought he saw one at a cycle shop where we came into town yesterday. And I'm about to sharpen up the engine a little. Feeling good now. We got in here in the afternoon and made up for a lot of sleep. It was a good thing we stopped. We were so stupid with exhaustion, we didn't know how tired we were. When John tried to register rooms, he couldn't even remember my name. The desk girl asked us if we owned those groovy, dreamy motorcycles outside the window, and we both laughed so hard, she wondered what we'd said wrong. Then it was just numbskull laughter from too much fatigue. We've been more than glad to leave them parked and walk for a change and baths in a beautiful old enameled cast iron bathtub that crouched on lion's paws in the middle of a marble floor, just waiting for us. The water was so soft, it felt as if I would never get the soap off. Afterward, we walked up and down the main streets and felt like a family. On this machine, I've done the tuning so many times, it becomes a ritual. I don't have to think much about how to do it anymore. Just mainly look for anything unusual. The engine has picked up a noise that sounds like a loose tappet, but could be from something worse. So I'm going to tune it now and see if it goes away. Tappet adjustment has to be done with the engine cold, which means wherever you park it for the night is where you work on it the next morning, which is why I'm on the shady curbstone back of a hotel in Miles City, Montana. Right now the air is cool in the shade and will be for an hour or so until the sun gets around the three tree branches, which is good for working on cycles. It's important not to tune these machines in the direct sun or late in the day when your brain gets muddy, because even if you've been through it a hundred times, you should be alert and looking for things. Not everyone understands what a completely rational process this is. This maintenance of a motorcycle, they think it's some kind of knack or some kind of affinity for machines in operation. They are right, but the knack is almost purely a process of reason. And most of the troubles are caused by what old time radio men called a short between the earphones, failure to use the head properly. A motorcycle functions entirely in accordance with the laws of reason. And a study of art of motorcycle maintenance is really a miniature study in the art of rationality itself. I said yesterday that the ghost of rationality was what Phaedrus pursued and what led to his insanity. But to get into that, it's vital to stay with the down-to-earth examples of rationality, so as not to get lost in generalities no one else can understand. 
talk about rationality can get very confusing unless the things with which rationality deals are also included. We are at the romantic classic barrier now, where on one side, we see a cycle as it appears immediately. And this is an important way of seeing it. And where on the other side, we can begin to see it as a mechanic does in terms of underlying form. And this is an important way of seeing things too. These tools, for example, this wrench has a certain romantic beauty to it, but its purpose is always purely classical. It's designed to change the underlying form of the machine. The porcelain inside this thing in this first plug is very dark. That is classically as well as romantically ugly because it means the cylinder is getting too much gas and not enough air. The carbon molecules in the gasoline aren't finding enough oxygen to combine with. They're just sitting there loading up the plug. Coming into town yesterday, the idle was loping a little, which is a symptom of the same thing. Just to see if it's the one cylinder that's rich, I check the other one. They're both the same. I get out a pocket knife, grab a stick lying in the gutter, whittle down the end to clean out the plugs, wondering what could be the cause of the richness. That wouldn't have anything to do with the rods or valves. And carbs rarely go out of adjustment. The main jets are oversized, which causes richness at high speeds. But the plugs were a lot cleaner than this before with the same jets. Mystery. You're always surrounded by them. But if you try to solve them, you never get the machine fixed. There's no immediate answer, so I just leave it as a hanging question. The first tap it is right on, no adjustment required. So I move on to the next. Still plenty of time before the sun gets past those trees. I always feel like I'm in church when I do this. The gauge is some type of religious icon and I'm performing a holy rite with it. It is a member of a set called Precision Measuring Instruments, which is a classic sense has profound meaning. In a motorcycle, this precision isn't maintained for any romantic or perfectionist reasons. It's simply that the enormous forces of heat and explosive pressure inside the engine can only be controlled through the kind of precision these instruments give. When each explosion takes place, it drives a connecting rod onto the crankshaft with a surface pressure of many tons per square inch. If the fit of the rod to the camshaft is precise, the explosion will be transferred smoothly and the metal will be able to stand it. But if the fit is loose, 
by a distance of only a few thousandths of an inch, the force will be delivered suddenly like a hammer and the rod bearing and crankshaft surface will soon be pounded flat, creating a noise, which at first sounds a lot like loose tappets. That's the reason I'm checking it now. If it is loose, if it is a loose rod, and I try to make it to the mountains without an overhaul, it will soon get louder and louder until the rod tears itself free, slams into the spinning crankshaft and destroys the engine. Sometimes broken rods will pile right down through the crankshaft and dump all the oil onto the road. All you can do then is start walking. But all this can be prevented by a few thousands of an inch bit with precision measuring instruments give. And this is their classical beauty. Not what you see, but what they mean. What they are capable of in terms of control of underlying form. The second tappet is fine. I swing over the to the street side of the machine and start on the other cylinder. Precision instruments are designed to achieve an idea, dimensional precision, whose perfection is impossible. There is no perfectly shaped part of the motorcycle and never will be. But when you come as close as the instruments take you, remarkable things happen. And you go flying across the countryside under power that would be called magic if it were not so completely rational in every way. It's the understanding of this rational intellectual idea that's fundamental. John looks at the motorcycle and he sees steel in various shapes and has negative feelings about these steel shapes and turns off the whole thing. I look at the shapes of the steel now and I see ideas. He thinks I'm working on parts. I am working on concepts. I was talking about these concepts yesterday when I said that a motorcycle can be divided into its components and according to its functions. When I said that suddenly, I created a set of boxes with the following arrangements. So basically, if you take what he's saying there, it's it's why I love permaculture, right? You can see the thing you're building or create a thing where people who don't understand what they're looking at would just look at it and say, oh, like, that's cute little park, right? But people who understand the underlying systems and how they function and can read the nature code can see it, right? They can see the, the underlying classic mathematics and how the thing is going to create itself forward and water itself and prune itself and take care of itself, right? Because you've laid out a living system with precision 
thought. Ah. Oh, it's just, oh, I love it. Anyway, onward, onward. Top box motorcycle, left box component, right box functions. And when I said the components may be subdivided into a power assembly and a running assembly, suddenly appear some more little boxes. Underneath components, two new boxes, left side, power assembly, right side, running assembly. And you see that every time I make a further division, up came more boxes based on these divisions until I had a huge pyramid of boxes. Finally, you see that while I was splitting up the cycle into finer and finer pieces, I was also building a structure. This structure of concepts is formally called a hierarchy. And since ancient times has been a basic structure for all Western knowledge, kingdoms, empires, churches, armies have all been structured into hierarchies. Modern businesses are also structured. Tables of contents of reference material are so structured, mechanical assemblies, computer software, all scientific and technical knowledge is so structured. So much that in some fields, such as biology, the hierarchy of kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species is almost an icon. The box motorcycle contains the boxes of components and functions. The box of components contains the boxes, power assembly and running assembly, and so on. There are many other kinds of structures produced by other operators, such as causes, which produces long chain structures of the form A causes B, which causes C, which causes D, and so on. A functional description of the motorcycle uses this structure. The operator exists, equals, and implies, produce still another structure. These structures are normally interrelated in patterns and paths so complex and so enormous, no one person can understand more than a small part of them in his lifetime. The overall name of these interrelated structures, the genus of which the hierarchy of containment and structure of causation are just species is system. The motorcycle is a system, a real system. To speak of certain government and establishment institutions as the system, is to speak correctly, since these organizations are founded upon the same structural conceptual relationships as a motorcycle. They are sustained by structural relationships, even when they have lost all other meaning and purpose. People arrive at a factory and perform a totally meaningless task from eight to five without question, because the structure demands that it be that way. 
there's no villain, no mean guy who wants them to live meaningless lives. It's just that the structure, the system demands it. And no one is willing to take on the formidable task of changing the structure just because it is meaningless. But to tear down a factory or to revolt against a government or to avoid repair of a motorcycle because it is a system is to attack effects rather than causes. And as long. Right. That's, that's the whole like creative destruction in business, right? People hated like Lee Iacocca for coming in and just slashing shit. And like, I forget the mergers, GE guy, uh, whatever. If you don't have, if you don't have the fungal effect of the forest floor consuming debris, you can't cycle. Then you have all these living dead trees that are really fucking dangerous, right? Because nature is not allowed to progress on its own. It gets out of balance. Ah, here we go. <laughs> Permaculture for the win. Is upon effects only. No change is possible. The true system... The real system is our present contradiction of systemic thought itself, rationality itself, and is a fact. And if a factory is torn down, but the rationality which produced it is left standing, then the rationality will simply produce another factory. If a revolution destroys, a systemic government, but the systemic pattern of thought that produced the government are left intact, that those patterns will repeat themselves in the succeeding government. There's so much talk about the system and so little understanding. That's all the motorcycle is. <laughs> right? Why, why do all the governments just keep Collapse, collapse, usually killing millions of motherfuckers, right? That were like giving their life energy to the system to help the others instead of just doing it themselves, right? Gathering power, gathering power. Right to the system instead of just doing your fucking self, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> until communism is completely fucking vanquished from the face of the fucking earth once and for all, the regime of motherfucking death, starvation enslavement will just roll on fuck 1913 there was guess how much of your income got fucking taken before 1913 zero percent 
yeah, you got to keep what you fucking earned because the government like did what it should do, being small, like survive off like you know import duties and tariffs, like all the bullshit fee stuff. Because tiny government doesn't need fucking money. Only a giant megalith republic of death and oppression needs fucking that much money. Yeah, yeah. So problem is the motherfuckers that like built this death machine cult will just rebuild it if you don't understand it and understand how they built it all around you right once you understand how they built it all around you when you take it apart you won't have to they'll take it apart you will have already built the non-hierarchical, decentralized, mycelial solution. We'll just let them That's declare defeat. Worked out in steel. There's no part in it, no shape in it. That is not out of somebody's mind. Number three, tap it, is right on two. One more to go. This had better be it. I've noticed that people who've never worked with steel have trouble seeing this, that the motorcycle is primary a mental phenomenon. They associate steel with given shapes, pipes, rods, girders, tools, parts, all of them fixed and invulnerable and think of it as a prime as primarily physical but a person who does machining or foundry work or forge work or welding sees steel as having no shape at all steel can be any shape you want it if you're skilled enough and any shape but the one you want if you are not shapes like this tap it are what you arrive at when you give to the steel. Steel has no more shape than this old pile of dirt on the engine here. These shapes are all out of someone's mind. That's important to see. The steel, hell. Even the steel is out of someone's mind. There's no steel in nature. Anyone from the Bronze Age could have told you that. All nature has is a potential for steel. There's nothing else there, but what's potential, that's also in someone's mind. Ghosts. That's really what Phaedrus was talking about when he said it's all in the mind. It sounds insane when you just jump up and say it without reference to anything specific like an engine. But when you tie it down to something specific and concrete, the insane sound tends to disappear, and you see he could have been saying something of importance. The fourth tappet is too loose, <clears throat> which is what I had hoped. I adjust it, I check the timing, and see that it is still right on, and the points are not pitted, so I leave them alone, screw on the valve covers, and replace the plugs, and start it up. The tappet noise is gone, but that doesn't mean much yet while the oil is still cold. I let it oil while I pack the tools away, then climb on 
and head for a cycle shop. A cyclist on the street told us about last night where they may have a chain adjuster link and a new foot peg rubber. Chris must have nervous feet. His foot pegs keep wearing out. I got a couple of blocks and still no tablet noise. It's beginning to sound good. I think it's gone. I won't come to any conclusions until we've gone about 30 miles though. But until then, and right now, the sun is bright, the air is cool, my head is clear, there's a whole day ahead of us, and we're almost to the mountains. It's a good day to be alive. It's the thinner air that does it. You always feel like this when you start getting into the higher altitudes. The altitude. That's why the engine's running rich. Sure, that's got to be the reason. We're at 2,500 feet now. I'd better switch to standard jets. They only take a few minutes to put in and lean out the idle adjustment a little. We'll be getting up a lot higher than this. Under some shady trees, I find Bill's cycle shop, but no Bill. A passerby says he has maybe gone fishing somewhere, leaving his shop wide open. We really are in the West. No one would ever leave a shop open like this in Chicago or New York. Inside, I see that Bill is a mechanic of the photographic mind school. Everything lying around everywhere. Wrenches, screwdrivers, old parts, old motorcycles, new parts. New motorcycle sales literature, inner tubes, all scattered so thickly and cluttered, you can't even see the workbenches under them. I, could, I couldn't work in conditions like this, but that's just because I'm not a photographic mind mechanic. Bill can probably turn around and put his hand on any tool in this mess without having to think where it is. I've seen mechanics like this drive you crazy to watch them but they get the job done just as well and sometimes faster. Move one tool three inches to the left, though, and he'll have to spend a day looking for it. Chicken Joe. Bill arrives with a grin about something. Sure, he's got some jets for my machine and knows right where they are. I'll have to wait a sec, though. He's got to close the deal out and back on some Harley parts. I go with him out in a shed in the back and see he is selling a whole Harley machine in used parts, except for the frame, which the customer already has. He is selling them all for $125. Not a bad price at all. Coming back, I comment, he'll know something about motorcycles before he gets those together. Bill laughs, and that's the best way to learn, too. He has the Jets, and foot peg rubber, but no chain adjuster link. I get the rubber and jets installed, take the lump out of the idle, then ride back to the hotel. Sylvie and John and Chris are just coming down the stairs with their stuff as I arrive. Their faces indicate they're in the same good mood I'm in. We head down the main street, find a restaurant, and order steaks for lunch. This is a great town, John says. Really great. Surprise there were any like this left. I was looking all over this morning. They've got Stockman's bars, high top boots, 
silver dollar belt buckles, Levi Stetson's, the whole thing. And it's real. This isn't just Chamber of Commerce stuff. In the bar down the block this morning, they just started talking to me like I lived here all my life. We ordered a round of beers. I see by a horseshoe sign on the wall, we're into Olympia beer territory now. And order that. They must have thought I was off a ranch or something, John continues. And this old guy was talking the way about how he wasn't going to give a thing to the goddamn boys. And I really enjoyed that. The ranch was going to go to the girls because the goddamn boys spend every cent they got down at Susie's. John breaks up with laughter. Sorry. He ever raised them. And so on. I thought all that stuff disappeared 30 years ago, but it's still here. The waitress comes with steaks and we knife right into them. That work on the cycle has given me an appetite. Something else that ought to interest you, John says, they were talking in the bar about Bozeman, where they're going, they said. The governor of Montana has a list of 50 radical college professors at the college in Bozeman he was going to fire. Then he got killed in a plane crash. That was a long time ago, I answer. These steaks really are good. I didn't know they had a lot of radicals in this state. They've got all kinds of people in this state, I say. But that was just right-wing politics. John helps himself to some more salt. He says, a Washington newspaper columnist came through and put it in his column yesterday, and that's why they were all talking about it. The president of the college confirmed it. Did they put, did they print the list? I don't know. Did you know any of them? If they had 50 names, I say, mine must have been one of them. They both look at me with some surprise. I didn't know much about it. Actually, it was him, of course, and with some feelings of falseness. Because of this, I explained that a radical in Gallatin County, Montana, is a little different from a radical somewhere else. This was a college, I tell them, where the wife of the president of the United States was actually banned because she was too controversial. Who? Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh my God, John laughs. That must have been wild. They want to hear more, but it's hard to say anything. Then I remember one thing. In a situation like that, a real radicals actually got a perfect setup. He can do almost anything and get away with it because his opposition have already made asses out of themselves. They'll make him look good no matter what he says. On the way out, we pass a city park which I noticed last night, and which produced a memory, concurrence, just a vision of looking up into some trees. He had slept on that park bench one night on his way through to Bozeman. That's why I didn't recognize the forest yesterday. He'd come through at night on his way to the college. 
at Bozeman. Dun, dun, dun. End of chapter eight. Oh, yeah. They're on the way to the College of Bozeman. Yeah. So that's funny how he says it was great because where you go, go to a place where even the slightest thing is like, ah, oh, radical, right? He's like, a true radical can really hang out and do well there because, you know everybody's so hypersensitized that everybody's called a radical. So <laughs> go deep. Oh yeah. It, uh, um, <laughs> oh, such a great book. Mycelial thinking. I don't know. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Hierarchical thinking and structure and all that. And, uh, it being imposed upon you immediately. Like, <laughs> imprinting brains from birth like this is how you have to know things hierarchy boom oh yeah yeah the, oh mm. the underlying form of like understanding a thing versus being able to use a thing <laughs> oh is what it is that's why there's black and the white and the yin yang and white and the black right not all one or the other. If you can kind of do both, it's a little bit easier. Or see both. Then you can see, like, the thing for what it is. Oh, and then you can start applying that thing to systems. Start seeing systems for what they are. Yeah. yeah. At least you understand how they work better if you can understand, like, underlying form and the romantic face of the thing the thing people want it to be versus the thing it is Ooh, ah let's see let's see i don't know i'm thinking today's gonna be a short day uh get on with some shit i gotta do unless anybody's got any questions or wants to pop in um what c4 crew uh yeah my coffee Consulting or cannabinoid club is uh, called the C4. C4. Uh, I'm doing 100 members and I'm cutting it off. They're going to be issued NFTs. Then those are going to be tradable. I got a board sometimes with the ask and bid and all that up on it. I'll get that back in here as soon as I go back out to the outdoor studio. Down here in sunny El Salvador. Uh, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll get that back up shortly. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, if you want some really awesome, and when I say awesome, I mean good coffee, the, the top of the pyramid. If you, if you go pyramid of coffee, right? If you cut off the top 3% at the top, that is specialty quality coffee scored 84 or above. So that coffee. I was funny. I was talking to somebody today at a forum about they, they pictured a <laughs> picture of a fucking percolator for making coffee. And I was like, oh, Jesus, if anyone's using one of those, you need to be bitch slapped or something to that effect. And they're like, what? I love my percolator. Like the only thing a percolator makes is acid water. Even beautiful coffee in a percolator just makes acid water. You're, you're heating above 240 degrees, so you're extracting massive amounts of acids. 
but I noticed their handle was whatever, whatever, NH, New Hampshire. And if you know anything about selling coffee in the country of the USA, like geographically trying to develop national brands, etc., people in the Northeast like refuse to drink good single origin coffees. Like they don't believe coffee is like sweet chocolatey almost sugary tasting with nothing in it just coffee right if you understand the top three percent specialty coffees right whoop, 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 over here top three percent of the tip the tip of the tip you don't have to put fucking cream and sugar and sugar and sugar and sugar and cream in to make it taste not like fucking battery acid right because it's beautiful because it's beautiful coffee People in the Northeast, you actually have to take beautiful coffee and fucking destroy it. So it's just less like battery acid. And then they'll accept it. It's fucking hilarious. Oh, national brand managers. The Northeast is their like bane. <laughs> People in the South can be trained. People in the Northeast are just like, give me shit or give me nothing. <laughs> I'll eat roots before I eat beautiful, smooth, velvety on the tongue coffee. <laughs> Anybody that understood anything I just said, yeah. Foodforcebombs.com. Just order a bag of Brian's blend. Try it. See what I'm talking about. I roast on an air roaster. It floats the beans on a bed of air. So unlike a drum roaster, it can't burn them. So it's a whole other level of roasting perfection. So you're talking top 3% of beans, right? And then done on a way that nobody roasts, like half a 1%. Anyway, that's why people that order my shit usually don't stop. <laughs> Unless they're from the Northeast and they're like, God damn, battery acid or nothing, motherfucker. <laughs> Oh, prove me wrong, Northeasterners. Order some beautiful coffee and then tell me how much it sucks. Oh, I love you guys. Go get some shit done. Me and the Scrapsters here got to go. Uh, go work on the farm. Hey, you got some. You got some uh, rats or something to chase down. I don't know. Maybe some mice. I saw a squirrel on the garden the other day. Come on, Scrap. Go get her done. <laughs>